This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Really happy to have back with us Dr. Penny Wheeler, president and CEO of Alina Health, joining us on the phone from Minnesota. So, Dr. Wheeler, great to have you back. And I do wonder, you know, just as we check in on this September 1st, March seems like just yesterday, but also a long time ago in terms of this virus really coming on fiercely in the United States. Give us a gut check, a reality check as to where we are uh, generally when it comes to fighting this virus. Yeah, boy, it does seem like lifetimes away since March, doesn't it, uh, Jason? So, so I think, you know, I think uh, we're still uh, very concerned. You know, I know our case counts here and uh, around the nation are still uh, too high to not have that level of concern. And then we've got an allergy season and a flu season coming on top of that. So I'd say high alert uh, is important. And and we do worry about caution fatigue that people have given the level of their life disruption. But they're still so important to containing this virus and its spread. Right. Well, and one of the things that we're seeing is some new and different approaches to healthcare. And so we want to bring into the conversation a, a colleague of yours out there in Minnesota, Dr. Craig Samet. He's the president of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota, also joining us on the phone from that state. Dr. Samet, really nice to have you as part of the conversation as well. We've learned a lot about the healthcare system, uh, good and bad throughout all of this. Tell us about this new partnership that you and Alina have initiated and what it may mean for how healthcare is delivered. Well, it's good to be with you today. Um, good to talk to you, Penny, as well. You know, I, Penny and I have been, and our teams have been meeting for nearly a year, and I would describe our initial get-togethers as mutual frustration. Um, I think we've, we've both recognized that we've lived in a, a volume-based healthcare world where systems in particular, like Penny's, have, have very much been dependent upon fee-for-service reimbursements. Um, um, the sicker the people are, um, the better the hospitals do. And, and that's opposed to, I think, what we both want, which is a world where quality prevails and that we focus truly on wellness and prevention. And so this partnership was meant to create and recast the payer-provider relationship so that we're both aligned around better care at a lower cost for the people that we serve. It's been pretty well documented that those with pre-existing conditions or obesity have responded more poorly uh, to COVID and they tend to get sicker. So that leads to more like preventative care. What does this partnership, uh, Dr. Wheeler, do to help that narrative? Yeah, well, I think it really helps uh, support what we really want to do from a mission perspective, which is, you know, prevent illness as well as restoring health. And this allows us to more proactively reach people to avoid primary and secondary complications. It gives us uh, upfront population health um, support financially so we can actually do things like expand telehealth and outreach procedures 
uh, outreach efforts so that we can actually reach people before they get uh, complications. And it also rewards us for quality. And, you know, I will always say that the better our quality is, the more affordable our care is because you uh, prevent those very complications that are so costly in human terms and in financial terms. So, Dr. Samet, as someone uh, speaking for myself who is often daunted by the system, what does this look like for the patient? Does it is it an easier interface? Is it an easier interaction? Because I do feel like that's one of the big hurdles here. Well, I think in many respects, we could argue that we've, uh, to some degree, failed the patient with the traditional healthcare system as we know it. I've long been frustrated by the fact that. You know, we aren't a very service-oriented or a convenient industry, and we also haven't, you know, we use the expression that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Patients want to be healthy. They don't want to be sick. And right. so my hope is is that what the patients feel is they feel better service, better care coordination, a true effort to focus on wellness and prevention uh, and protection, and not just having the system be there uh, when, when all else fails and that our patients get sick. Dr. Wheeler, what about the people who aren't um, on Blue Cross? Like, how do you get more people treated without the insurance issue? Yeah, I think that, first of all, a great, great respect for Craig, and I think we've both approached this, you know, having been practicing physicians, so we've seen it up close and personal. And what we hope is that actually this is a, this agreement is a catalyst to other agreements like it for our community and even broader. And so uh, it's not just for the the hundred plus thousands that we uh, serve together, but actually, you know, for all that we serve and that more agreements like this that are reward for the best outcomes, best accessibility, best equity, you know, um, per dollar spent, uh, that this is a catalytic effort that will uh, get to more of those. This was never meant to be exclusive. Craig and I always thought that this could be something that could spur on other agreements like it and our communities would benefit. Dr. Saban, I guess what I would ask you is the question that Alex and I have been kicking around for the last couple of days and for longer than that, we've got headlines about New York City figuring out how folks are going to get back to school. That's the question on everyone's mind. As a doctor, as someone who is talking to folks all the time, what should we be thinking about when it comes to getting back to some semblance of normal pre-vaccine? Well, I think that the challenge that we're all facing is striking the delicate balance uh, between preventing further surge of the virus. You know, I, I think we're not quite where New York is yet in Minnesota. We've most recently still had a surge of new cases. And mm. so we certainly don't want to continue the spread or continue the surge, although I think we all recognize that uh, we, we want to strengthen the economy. We certainly want kids to come back to school. So I think that the... Um, the most important thing is as much diligence as we can to keep people safe, whether it's kids or adults, uh, and practicing just good hygiene and mask wearing and social distancing, um, as well as, you know, I think one of the things that we, we have certainly supported here in Minnesota is an effort to quickly test and contact trace. Uh, so and, I think one yeah. of the things that we certainly have been doing is to try to enhance the role that we can play to keep people safe when they want to come back out and about. And, you know, all of that, the measures in place until we get that vaccine, we just heard the news about AstraZeneca testing on more patients. So, Dr. Wheeler, I'm wondering how you're thinking about vaccine distribution. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, 
you know, the vaccine, I think that the thing that we are most concerned about as healthcare providers is to make sure that we have a vaccine. We want a vaccine. All of us want a vaccine. First of all, it's not a complete panacea because as we know from flu vaccines, they're not 100% effective and not everybody gets one. So what you want is to have one you can trust in as much as possible. So I think that uh, uh, that's really important for the public. So what we hope is to get an effective vaccine quickly, but not so quickly as that the efficacy isn't known and the safety profile isn't known. Um, and then uh, the distribution of that, you know, is uh, important, too, to those areas that are most likely to be impacted, for example, like congregate senior living uh, facilities, you know, and, and making sure we have prioritized approach to the distribution. So, Dr. Samet, best advice for someone, we've only got a couple minutes left here, as we go into the fall, it's September 1, so we're all sort of thinking about this back half of the year, back third, back quarter of the year. Uh, what's the best advice for people just to stay healthy? What should we be doing? I mean, I think in addition to physical health, the most important thing, and, and I think something that everyone has struggled with, is well-being. Uh, so I, we're, as, we're as worried about people's social health and behavioral health as we are their clinical health. And I think people taking advantage of bringing some normalcy and um, sort of uh, routine uh, back to a work-from-home environment is going to be important to help people survive what could be a subsequent surge of the virus and will carry us through into a healthier 2021. Dr. Oh, Wheeler, sounds so your optimistic. best advice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. And, and I think, quite honestly, I'll, I'll read that and just say, and more creative partnerships like the one be, that we have between Alina and Blue Cross Blue Shield, which actually reward you for the best support and preventative measures you can for the populations we serve. Um, this time has changed us dramatically. It can change us for the better dramatically, too, and this partnership is an example of that. All right. Well, we appreciate you guys bringing us some insights into that and everything else. Dr. Penny Wheeler, President and CEO of Alina Health, back with us from Minnesota. And uh, nice to meet Dr. Craig Samet, President of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. They both uh, are working on the front lines in many ways, uh, Alex, and I do think that that sense of routine is an important one, in part because we're six months into this at mm -hmm. this point. You know, we're beyond the, to use the, the medical term, sort of triage aspect of this. We got to find new routines. We're, we got to settle in to some extent. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It's one of those where I'm just like rubbing my hands together because I can't wait to get my hands on it. I've seen some of the stories already. And this one that we're about to talk about, I have to say, it's one that I was most excited to hear about because the writer is none other than Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. His story, nine types of voters will decide the 2020 U.S. election. It's part of a special issue all about politics. Joel Weber, the architect of it all, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. So, Joel, tee this up for us because all I want is for Josh Green to tell me what the heck is going to happen over the next 63 days. Oh, you and me both. And I've just been like <laughs> waiting, waiting for this one patiently, um, but very excited um, as well. And, you know, he's got he's got more uh, tricks in his bag that um, that we're going to see soon, I think. Uh, this one is particularly interesting because, you know, I think the thing that when Business Week does its election issue, which is every four years, we use a certain framing always, which is less about the candidates or the horse race than it is to kind of put the lens on on the electorate. 
And when we started talking about how to do that right now, um, the country is obviously un facing just enorm enormous crises uh, between the economy and the pandemic and, and then the election. Um, and w which is, you know, there, this election kind of feels like like one that uh, is, you know, all it would have been the story of the year and then all these other things have happened. Um, and yet, you know, here we are finally uh, um, approaching this and it's going to be heated and contested. Right. And so when Josh and I and a couple of the other editors got on the phone about this a while ago, I think Josh was was really decisive in being like, you know, let's put the, the, the lens on the voters. And there are certain people in this country who will probably be courted by both sides of the aisle and the the fate of the election will ultimately basically come down to them. And then he set out to actually talk to some of them, um, in addition to all the pollsters along the way, to figure out how to do this. Um, nine of them. Josh, which was the one that surprised you the most? I mean, it's hard to boil it all uh, down to one that surprised you the most because we have nine categories. And each, each on its own could be kind of you know instrumental in, in the final event. I think the most surprising and interesting one to me, though, were refugees of Hurricane Katrina. These are Puerto Ricans, American citizens who moved to Florida, who relocated there after Hurricane Maria in 2017. They've moved in such enormous numbers. There are about 400,000 of them who have moved there, most concentrated in and around Orlando, that they have quickly grown to become the second largest Hispanic voting group in Florida next to Cubans who've been there now for generations. And if you look at the way uh, most Puerto Ricans feel about President Trump and the way he's treated uh, the island of Puerto Rico, their voter sentiment runs very strongly Democratic. Uh, we, we found and interviewed several of them, and it's just a really fascinating cross-section of an important voter group, but also one, as you might imagine, that's struggling with all sorts of things beyond politics, finding a job, finding housing, navigating the COVID economy, uh, you know, moving family members from the island back and forth. I spoke to one mom who had sent her children, moved, she moved to Florida after the hurricane, sent her children back to Puerto Rico because she decided COVID was worse in Florida than Puerto Rico. So you can imagine these voters, um, both parties kind of competing for their attention and just the ability to get them to turn out and vote for a candidate in November. The other uh, group that you talk about, which in, in some ways played a large part in the election in 2016, also were the shy Trumpers. Um, they're still out there. Where are they? What are they saying? Well, it's not clear. I mean, you know, I think of shy Trumpers as being kind of like Bigfoot. Like there's a real debate about whether or not they even exist. So, so shy Trumpers first came on my radar four years ago when the Trump campaign was absolutely convinced that there was a large pool of voters out there who supported Trump, who intended to vote for him, but who wouldn't admit this to pollsters and members of the media. And of course, Trump ended up overperforming expectations. So some reason to think that might have been a factor in 2016. The debate this time around is... You know, are there still shy Trumpers who think that there's a social penalty to speaking out about their support for Trump? Uh, because most pollsters say there isn't anymore that, you know, if you're a Republican, you're now an out and proud Trump supporter. Um, but on the other hand, I think we know people in our own lives and we found a few remarkable ones for this issue who said, no, we do still support Trump, but because of the family and the social circles or 
you know, the culture at our workplace that isn't something we can talk about openly. So that could be another group that, that tilts the election if there are enough of them in, in critical battleground states. Another one, Josh, that I loved was uh, double haters. And that's a category that existed last time as well. But what's different about it in this election? So double haters was a category. I had to take credit for this one that, that, that I discovered or at least popularized in 2016 when I was doing my book uh, on the 2016 election, Devil's Bargain. Double haters was the nickname that Trump's data scientists gave to a group of voters that they were fascinated with competing to get. Double haters were people who hated both Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016, but whose voting history suggested that they were going to show up at the polls on Election Day and pull the lever for somebody. So there was this frantic competition between Hillary's campaign and, and, and Trump's campaign. Uh, in the end, Trump won almost all of those voters. So this cycle, there are still double haters. Of course, this time, there are people who dislike both Biden and Trump. The huge difference this time, though, is last time they tended to be fairly conservative folks. This time, the vast majority of them are progressives, and they tend to especially be people who supported Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, but for whatever reason just haven't quite come around to committing to Biden yet. So we found and interviewed some of these guys, some of them kind of leaning towards Biden, others saying, absolutely, there's no way I'm going to vote for him. All right, 30 seconds. Give us uh, just a half minute on swinging seniors. Love this. Swinging seniors, not necessarily what you think they might be. (laughs) I'll I'll leave that to your imagination, Jason, but swinging seniors are – Seniors, people over 65, were one of the categories that Trump won by the most. I think he won by 13 points in 2016. Well, because of a lot of reasons, coronavirus, disillusionment with Trump, they have swung hard to Joe Biden. Uh, In a lot of recent polls I've seen, they're tied or Biden's even a little bit ahead. If they swing from Trump to Biden in 2020, this election is going to go to Democrats. Interesting. All right. Josh Green can never get enough of you. Thank you so much. National correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us on the phone from D.C. It's a must read to understand what's going on here. A centerpiece of a special election issue. We do it every four years. Our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. And of course, check out Josh's book, The Devil's Bargain. It is fantastic. And you really understand how we got here. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Is this time different? That's the question that many are asking who are around in 2008 that lived through uh, that recession and had to build themselves up after it. Some say no, some say Yes. So joining us now is a man that says, no, actually, it's going to be worse potentially than in 2008. And that is Vincent Reinhardt, chief economist at Standish Mellon Asset Management, also worked for the Fed for 24 years and recently has an article coming out in the forthcoming issue of Foreign Affairs magazine written with his wife, Carmen Reinhardt, talking about this economic downturn and the pandemic depression quote uh, that you see coming. Uh, Vincent, it's always a sincere pleasure to talk to you. I guess why? Why is this one not going to be that V that some really think it will be? Well, thank, thank you for wanting me to talk, talk with me, Alex. Uh, so the answer is, uh, if you decline by a third and then come back by a quarter, you're still in a deep hole. And as you decline, uh, you break crockery. Businesses close that won't reopen. People leave the labor market and don't come back. People uh, while they're unemployed, lose skills. And then think of uh, a generation that were given a substandard education. Probably the worst thing to ha- uh, situation is 
uh, graduating and trying to find a job right now. That's a long-lasting scar. And typically, it takes a while after a, a deep economic cor- correction to come back. In the Mellon forecast, we don't retain the level of real GDP we had at the beginning of this year until 2023. Yeah, I mean, I think, Vincent, it, it is one of these things, and, and as Alex so rightly said, you know, this time is different, is such a cliche to some extent, but I feel like over the last six months, we have seen things we never thought that we would see, and I think we're starting to see these knock-on effects that we are just barely getting our heads around, and and one you just mentioned, what else are we not thinking enough about when it comes to maybe the unseen or unforetold consequences here economically? Uh, The known unknowns. uh, That's right. uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, this time is different. Also, makes for a good book title, right? <laughs> and 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 I think the reminder was that it's not two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It's much more like the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Importantly, this is one of the few times where we had a synchronous downturn around the world. In two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, China was pulling out the world economy by enormous fiscal fiscal stimulus, helping emerging markets helping commodity prices, helping capital flows. This time, everybody, everybody fell. So, And when everybody falls, nobody's there to support you. So what do you look for? Balance sheet distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, households have been dipping into their, their saving, which is too little to begin with, uh, to tide them over. Small businesses don't have capital except goodwill, and you can't borrow against goodwill, and the government is piling on a lot of debt. That will make us uh, less resilient going forward. So it raises a good point in that is the level of differentness, I made that word up, uh, dependent on the budget deficit and how much money your government can basically spend. So, so the sad thing is we actually wrote that article back in March. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we worried about was that people would re- uh, confuse rebound for recovery. Mm. Look, when you fall that much, because you've closed businesses, you haven't let people go to their shops, you haven't let people go to the marketplaces. When you let them back, you'll get a big rebound, but you won't, we can't regain the earlier level. And that may fool investors. Equity prices are setting new highs, even though uh, the economy is still impaired, and it may take the pressure off politicians. We don't have stimulus legislation. We've created a, a, a fiscal pothole for ourselves. And it's not obvious it will get better. State and local governments are going to have to be uh, retrenched as well. So we are not adding impetus in a, a situation in which the economy is, is, is still well below its potential. So, Vincent, where does Jay Powell fit into all of this? Because he has been seen by many as heroic through all of this. The Fed uh, has been the ultimate backstop for many people, and a lot of people attribute what we're seeing, this disconnect in the stock market versus the underlying economy, to the Fed will save us kind of mentality. How does that figure into how you analyze this? Yeah, so there are two remarkable things that, you know, in, in, in March, one wasn't a surprise and one was. Uh, what wasn't a surprise is that in a time of distress, the Federal Reserve would do everything it possibly could. Uh, it was kind of remarkable. They were launching one new program just about every 18 hours. Uh, the policy rate is at its effective lower bound, and the balance sheet is more than $7 trillion. 
the surprising thing was Congress actually acted. A, a, a normally dysfunctional body passed three pieces of legislation in, in about three weeks. Uh, so it is both the monetary and fiscal stimulus that, that has, has helped the rebound and the physical fact we've, we've, we're letting people go back into the market economy. The problem is the Fed is at its effective lower bound. It's doing everything it's, it, it can, and we're throttling back on fiscal impetus. We only have about 30 seconds left, but is there one country that's set up best now to, get, to, to move past it? So, uh, so the, the short answer is not really when it's a global contraction, when it's when it's a, a global pandemic depression. Um, in some sense, uh, the depreciation of the dollar is the U.S. asking to share some of its weakness with our trading partners, and our trading partners are pretty weak too. Uh, the economic data have been been uh, comforting about the rebound, but they've been disheartening about the about the level. Yeah. Uh, what a cool conversation. Thank you so much. Vincent Reinhardt, Chief Economist for Standish Mellon Asset Management, joining us on the phone from New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close here on a very green Tuesday. You heard Charlie break down the numbers there. Let's get into what's underneath this upward trend that we have been experiencing really since March without fail or much fail. Abhay Deshpande back with us, founder and chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors. He joins us on the phone from Connecticut. Abhay, how are you? Nice to hear your voice. Oh, thanks. Uh, good to be here again, Jason. It's been a couple of months, but um, yeah. yeah, we're doing, doing fine, isolating like everybody else, but um, you know, in and out of the office and trying to get, keep it as real as possible. Yeah. So what's that like? Talk to us about that, sort of your routine and, you know, kind of keeping the team engaged and, and all of that amid, obviously, some very different protocols. Well, I, for one, was not surprised about Zoom's results. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, I, I think uh, we make uh, quite a bit of use of technology. And I think, you know, we're in the same camp as most people realizing how much they can get done uh, not being in the office. That said, uh, you know, I really miss New York City, at least the one I used to know, and uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully things getting back to normal next, you know, few months or whatever. Um, I'd love to ask. Uh, yeah, I'm curious as to when you're actually going to think about going back into the office, but we can sh- shelve that for another time because uh, I just want to get your top call right now because there's a lot of debate in the market as in, you know, can we keep on these record highs? Do you need to buy tech? Uh, what do you do with the dollar? What, what's your top thing? Yeah, I, uh, we are um, increasingly more weighted towards the old world. Um, not that we had a lot of technology to begin with, but, um, you know, we're starting to see uh, signs already uh, kind of past an inflection point for uh, the industrial economies um, around the world outside the United States, and we're migrating more and more to the uh, non-U.S. markets. So currently our global fund, which is a Centerstone Investors Fund, uh, you know, it's two-thirds outside the U.S., maybe a little bit more. And, the, um, you know, when you know, we've owned gold for... Um, many, many years, I'm, you know, different funds for over a couple of decades. 
And, uh, you know, that we continue to um, have find some use for, for that as an asset as a diversifier as well. And so when you look at the outside the, the U.S. mix, uh, take us down a level. I mean, where are you seeing opportunities? Is it Asia? Is it Europe? Is it more of the frontier emerging markets? What are you seeing? Uh, we can we we don't really invest in the uh, frontier markets yeah. much. We do have uh, about ten percent in emerging markets. Uh, our largest weighting, however, is to Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Europe itself has a, its own weighting, uh, you know, overweighting to emerging markets. It's, you know, those companies have a lot of business all around the world, obviously. Right. And um, the, I think the common theme is outside the U.S. There's just not that much tech. So if you separate the tech world mm-hmm. from uh, you know, tech and networking world from the old economy, it kind of have two different stock markets. I mean, there's been a bottom in both, but uh, one is, you know, it's like the 747 is like spooling up on the on the runway here, and and the jets are far ahead of it. Um, but, you know, I'd rather have the, du- the endurance and the durability of a, a nice, comfortable jet. It's just going to take a while to get off the ground, but we started the ground roll, ground roll already. Is your call on Europe a recovery slash value trade, or is it something else? Yeah, it's got both. I mean, it's got everything going for it, actually. Uh, you have many years of underperformance, right, for, for many reasons. But um, a lot of the uh, influences have kind of turned into uh, the, the tailwinds have turned into uh, headwinds have turned into tailwinds, primarily uh, fiscal policy. I mean, it, there was a long period of time until just January, February, where you, know, you had very, very loose monetary policy, but very restrictive uh, fiscal, fiscal policy. It's kind of like having your foot on the on the brakes and the gas at the same time, you're, you know, the car's just not going to go anywhere. And now the foot's off the brake. Um, and so the car's moving forward, gathering speed. Um, now that, that shift had already begun before COVID. COVID had just, I think, uh, well, I don't think, but it, it uh, very much uh, accelerated the turnaround. Um, so underneath the surface, I think you have a, rap- a rapid amount of improvement. It's being masked, obviously, by the, the, um, the veil, I guess, of this... Uh, virus and its effect on the on spending. But as things normalize, and I think we'll get the signs of things normalizing uh, well before year end, probably November, December, um, you'll, you'll I, I would imagine, um, find a lot of people interested in Europe as well um, as those kind of industrial type companies. So they're undergoing the beginning stages of, like much of the world is, the beginning stages of an industrial revival after two years of a downturn. Um, and in that two-year period, many of those stocks got very cheap. So you kind of have right. two things going forward. you got a cycle change and low multiples. So, Abe, back at home uh, here in the United States, how do you figure the election into your investment thesis? I feel like we sort of backburnered it burnered it uh, up through the conventions, and now it's right in front of us every day, and it feels like investors are starting to pay a little bit closer attention. How do you think about it? Um, you know, we don't really incorporate it too much. These are kind of short-term elements. No matter who when, wins, the trends are in place, and uh, you, can, you can sort of tinker at the edges and try to make a lot of noise about demographics or just, you know, the amount of capital or borrowing that's going to be done to try to accelerate the uh, re- re- rebound from the uh, from this recession. I, no matter who's in charge, that's all going to happen. Um, so the political, it just, just becomes a headline issue, and we don't get into politics. But what about certain sectors, right? Like energy, for example, under Biden or Trump is going to be very different. The same thing for any sort of green technology. Um, 
how do you look at it from that perspective? Well, I think that tr- the world has been trending towards, um, you know, environmentally friendly sources of energy for years. It kind of doesn't depend on who's in charge. Even during the Trump administration, there was a there was forward progress made. Um, I know there was some backward progress as well, but on the whole, it's I think society's moving towards the acceptance of a greener future. It's just a matter of pace. So, you know, I, I don't know that I see Buffett and so on, you know, they're kind of doubling down on some of these older hydrocarbon um, sources. Uh, we have like a very, very small um, allocation to energy. Um, small, by that, I mean less than half a percent mm-hmm. dwindling. Um, not because like I have a, you know, some issue uh, like, you know, political issue or whatever. It's it's just because those aren't great businesses. <laughs> There's right. not a lot of cash flow generated. There's a great deal of reinvestment required just to stay still. Um, you know, the one exception to that is we do own some gold mining companies. Uh, those are not resources, you know, uh, as, as, as that is defined. But uh, that's only kind of sector where we right. have like a dirty mining kind of exposure. Right. Interesting. Oh, it's good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Abe Deshpande is founder and chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.